Welcome to Healthcare is Hard, a podcast for insiders. Each episode, LRV Health's Keith Viglioli will talk to the healthcare insiders who are helping to fundamentally transform our healthcare industry. Hey everyone, welcome back. This is Tom Salemi. You're now listening to Healthcare is Hard, a podcast for insiders, episode number five. Does it feel like number five? Keith Figlioli? It sure does. It feels like maybe 10 or 12, actually. You getting the, you getting the hang of this? I think I'm getting the hang of it. I, you know, I think so. Re- regardless of getting the hang of it, I just think it's a lot of fun having these more informal discussions with some of these folks. You got a good one today. You've got uh, Mark Kerouac from, from Bay State. And, and people who aren't in Boston might not know this, but for us, I think the flyover country kind of begins after Wor- Worcester, which is kind of the middle of the state. So we don't really hear a great deal about uh, the Springfield area where Bay State is located, but uh, we're starting to. They're doing some really fascinating things. Tell us a bit about Bay State and, and why you uh, talk with Mark Kerouac. Yeah, that's why actually I'm excited because I think, you know, the people that have been around for a long period of time sort of know Bay State pretty well. Um, they're a, bear, a very accoladed and awarded uh, quality and safety integrated delivery network. And Dr. Mark Kerouac has been there for a good period of time, sort of uh, running the show there. And they've got really interesting parts to their system. They have a captive um, uh, health plan. They have, I think, uh, north of a 60% market share in Western Massachusetts uh, across the population set there. Um, And they've also um, got not only tied to their plan, but they've got over, I think, 60%, Mark says it in more detail in the interview, of risk-based contracts. And so here is this really interesting institution in the Western part of Massachusetts very captive um, with a high value-based care footprint from a financial footprint and a contracting standpoint with its own payer and a really broad set of employed and affiliated physicians. And we kind of drilled down on that a lot with Mark. I mean, one of the things I think that has been in the press for a while lately is sort of the ongoing consolidation of physician practices into health systems. And Mark is a a foremost leader in this area and understanding this, having run many, many large medical practices over the years. Um, And getting his point of view on where is that trend going? How is that going? And looking at it from a health system vantage point, as well as a a physician leader standpoint. So I think people are going to be really interested in it. And they're doing a lot of interesting stuff on the innovation side. You get into this in the conversation, but uh, the tech spring effort they have going on uh, sounds like a real uh, opportunity for healthcare entrepreneurs. Yeah, and tech springs, I forgot to mention that before, and that's a really interesting innovation lab uh, that their CIO and Mark had put together um, a number of years ago with the state of Massachusetts. It actually came from um, an original, I believe, grant from the state. Uh, to be able to set that up in Western Massachusetts and try to foster sort of entrepreneurs and innovation in that part of the country. Ironically, what's also happening is you're getting a lot of people from Boston going out to Springfield and using that as a test bed since it's kind of a live living lab uh, embedded within the health system out there. Yeah, you can get behind the firewall and you can look at uh, both clinical and claims data, of course, uh, without the names attached. Uh, that has to be a real windfall for a healthcare entrepreneur. Absolutely. And it's pretty unique. Uh, there's not many of them across the country that are at that level. Um, and so I've had firsthand view out there with Joel Venka, who's their CIO, uh, and Mark and the team. And uh, I've been pretty impressed. Well, let's uh, save the rest for the interview. I think uh, you opened up with a real uh, interesting point about uh, Mark's family history. So I think people will enjoy learning about that as well. So let's get into this episode of Healthcare is Hard, a podcast for insiders. 
Well, we are on to our next episode of Healthcare is Hard, and I'm here with uh, Mark Kerouac, the president and CEO of Bay State Health out here in Springfield, Massachusetts. I couldn't uh, be more excited to hang out with you, Mark. Well, it's great to be with you today. Look forward to our conversation. Yeah, this should be fun. So we've known each other for quite some time. We have. Uh, and it's always fun, uh, as I always say, when I interview folks that I know for a long time, because I can always poke and prod on some areas that, that um, we have side discussions on, hopefully we can bring out so people can enjoy. But I think before we get going, I, as I always start these things, is really you know, give, give people a little bit of your background. Um, obviously, you've got an incredible position here out of Bay State, but you, know, you got here somehow, so it'd be sure, great to understand sure. that a little better. Well, uh, one thing you may not know is that I grew up right here in town. I grew up in Springfield. Mom was a nurse. Dad was an old-fashioned uh, doctor with an office right in our house. Literally, if you had opened the wrong door, you'd wind up in the waiting room. And so medicine was kind of the family business. And uh, uh, all five of the Kerouac brothers became doctors. No way. Uh, unbelievable. I don't think huh? I knew that. Yeah, yeah. Huh. Uh, so I went into internal medicine, infectious disease. I uh, met my wife in medical school, been married 38 years now, and uh, came out of and went into practice in infectious disease in the early 1980s, right at the dawn of the AIDS epidemic. So I became a very busy HIV and AIDS practitioner that was uh, uh, in uh, first in Boston, then in Worcester, Massachusetts. Uh, and then in the early 1990s, I kind of got the bug uh, for the quality and safety movement. It was really an infant science then. And I got interested in applying sort of scientific methods to quality improvement uh, and got more and more involved in that. Uh, that working with doctors around guidelines then led to working with doctors around medical groups. So when UMass and Memorial merged in the early 1990s in Worcester, um, I became the first president of the UMass Memorial Medical Group. Did that for a few years and then spent 10 years when we got to know each other. I was out in Chicago as the chief medical officer of University Health System Consortium, working again on quality and safety and group practice management. Yeah. Uh, got the call to come back to Springfield in 2011 first as the head of the medical group, uh, then as the COO, and then finally coming into my fifth year as the CEO. Well, that is a tremendous background um, and a great background to probe on today because one of the themes that I thought we would talk about as you and I talked a little bit in our prep was really trying to understand the psyche of the health system and the standalone practices and what's been happening, as you know, for the better part of the last decade is more and more health systems buying up independent practices and things of that degree. But before we jump there, you know, we just had spent some time with Susan DeVore of Premier, and we had a great discussion about what Premier is. And so I always like unpacking things that people don't understand. So what, just a real quick on your background, UHC, because you spent a lot of time there, and that's when we first got to know each other. Is UHC pretty similar? And now I think it's part of Vizient, right? When I was there uh, in the uh, first 10 years of the 2000s, uh, it was a member-owned alliance of 120 academic medical centers from across the country, pretty much all of the big names that you'd see on the U.S. News and World Report honor roll. Um, and they did group purchasing together through a jointly owned company called Novation. But they also shared best practices and they shared outcome data, uh, which was the exciting thing to me. And so I was overseeing quality and safety initiatives, and we fielded a couple of uh, technologic products to help people manage patient safety and uh, group practice uh, faculty activity uh, in the clinical billing uh, arena. So uh, back in 2012 or 2013, UHC merged with a fellow company called VHA to form uh, Vizient. Mm. 
Right. So UHC is now a subsidiary of Vizient. But similar mindset, and then we can move off it to Premier, where it's really trying to focus in on quality oh. and safety and benchmarking across a peer set of groups. And we looked at you guys as the competition. Uh, <laughs> well, now you're part of Premier. And, and now I'm part it. of Premier, yeah. So you've seen both sides. So that's yeah. great. So on, on that front on quality and safety and delivery of care, I think just, just jumping into this idea of sort of clinical networks and we'll jump into value as well, like I always do in most of these discussions. But, you know, when you step back from your lineage, from to your point about you'd open up the door, there's your weight room and, you know, the, the great docs of many, many years were these great entrepreneurs. And lo and behold, as things got more complex, it seems like, and, and the world's got more complex, more and more of them have bought up either, you know, as you know, United is the largest owner, I think, of, of independent practices now. Um and a lot of health systems own the balance of them. I think we're north, you probably know better than I would, but I think we're north of 60 to 70% ownership of all practices in the U.S., something in that, right. in that range. So I'm just curious a little bit of history and a little bit of your point of view currently, how you think that trend is going and, and more importantly, what's going to happen there? Sure. Well, certainly something's been lost and something's gained uh, when doctors become parts of large organizations and work in systems, uh, that sort of entrepreneurial spirit and that sort of intimate personal touch that you got from a small office might be lost, or certainly it's harder to achieve. Um, but working together in teams and in systems often does yield better results, too. Uh, and I think that was one of the lessons of the quality movement is that you, if you can really obsess about how to design systems of care across specialties, across regions, uh, you often can yield better outcomes or at least less variable outcomes. And uh, that to me is one of the great motivations in trying to put together the pieces of these integrated delivery network. And do you feel like that is the path, you know, as, as someone wrote um uh, a friend of mine wrote about the health systems becoming the great platforms. Do you feel like that's going to be the march forward where more and more practices will be part of a system and the days of the standalone practice and, and you know, in a house or in a, in a small practice are over? Or do you feel like that still exists for certain areas? I think it depends on the specialty. I think it's going to be harder and harder to practice primary care as a standalone one or two or three doctor office in any but let's say a boutique practice in a very wealthy area, you might be able to get away with it. There are some specialties that are kind of on islands by themselves, like ophthalmology or ENT, and other specialties that seem to be able to stand on their own, orthopedic surgery, urology come to mind. Um, but most of the medical specialties and most of the primary care specialties, I think, are going to somehow aggregate with some kind of integrative model whether that's a hospital-based system or a large multi-specialty medical group or some 30, third party like an Optum, um, I think we're going to see a whole variety of different models in the next few years. Got it. And so to bring it back to Bay State, a little local, to get a little bit more detail here and put your health system leadership hat on, and maybe also talk about Bay State because we did skip over that a little bit about the overview here. You know, Tell me a little bit more about one, Bay State, and then how you put your strategic hat on, how you think about employed versus affiliated, and then maybe we'll dump into the sort of the value sure. side of that. Um, so Bay State is a um, large integrated delivery network with about a 60% market share in the three counties of the Connecticut River Valley. Um, we have four hospitals. We have a 1,000 providers. About 120 of them are in primary care and employed. Uh, we have a large health plan with 160,000 lives. 
a home care agency, um, and then a large physician hospital organization where our thousand doctors are um, also with about six or 700 private practitioners um, and in joint at-risk contracts. Uh, the whole system is about $2.5 billion in revenue, and we've really made a strategic decision to push hard into population health, into globally budgeted approaches to payment, so that today, for a typical primary care doctor, um, three-quarters of his or her patients are in a globally budgeted arrangement, whether it's Blue Cross Alternative Quality Contract, Medicare Next Generation ACO, Medicaid ACO. Um, and over half of our system revenue comes from patients who are in these globally budgeted arrangements. So we work side by side with, with seven or eight big private practice groups. And as a matter of fact, we have professional services arrangements with three of them uh, and are at risk in the same contracts and in the same ACOs. I think that's something that a lot of people miss um... We have a lot of new people coming into healthcare, so they haven't been around about the complexity of MSOs and all the different things that go on and the JVs. And then you compound that with value-based contracts, which at some point in time, mm -hmm. you had told me, this may have been back in the premier days, I think you guys were at 60% of your contracts or something like that. I had some level of, of risk associated with them. I don't mm -hmm. know if that's still true. More. Or more than that. So, so when you think about that and you think about the complexity of managing that Again, to stick with the theme, the physician network, I assume that's a pretty complex endeavor to get right, even in a community where you have a 60% market share. Yeah, and, and I don't think we have it right yet, but yeah. we continue to work toward it. And typically in these arrangements, you're rewarded for getting just a little bit better than you were last year. So you don't have to be perfect. Right. Um, but for example, in our PHO, um, we have a complex care management network with case managers, um, shared databases where we give people utilization data uh, in a variety of technologic models, one called patient ping, where we can keep track of patients where they move across the system. Um, another called light beam, which uh, enables, which is helpful with, you know, coding and documentation. So we share these resources uh, and there's a different culture in each of these small practices, plus the big employed group as well. Um, but we sort of sit around the table. It's kind of like a New England town meeting uh, and discuss how are we going to get better uh, if we, you know, we have an issue, for example, with emergency room use per thousand population and what are our approaches to try to get that, you know, under control. It's been interesting for us to enter into these PSA arrangements, which are typically five or six year deals, and understand how efficiently some of these small you know, seven, 10, 15 member uh, practices are running and, and we actually share learning across the, uh, the practices. And then because the health system is so much more resources and so much more capabilities in those arrangements, I assume there's shared services and different things that you may take on on behalf of those. Because again, one of the things that just, you know, is very logical is you've got a small practice and you want to survive. You've got to have partnerships by which you share share some of these services that are pretty complex right. and pretty heavy. In terms of the cost of the PHO infrastructure, there's a sort of a yearly subsidy or stipend that comes from the health system, as well as yearly contributions that come from the IPO, which are the aggregated uh, independent practices. But more and more, we're using the surpluses we generate from these risk contracts to fund Got the it. practice infrastructure. Got it. And then, and then when you think about sort of back to value-based care and you think about, you know, the language that a lot of people have been 
talking about, but not getting into much detail, you know, downside risk. How in Western Mass here, how are you guys thinking about sort of downside risk and how does the health system think about potentially taking on things like that? And then also some of those affiliated into our own practices. I mean, we're, we're set up to do it and we're doing it. Right. Uh, so our next generation ACO is roughly 50,000 seniors uh, with a budget of about $450 million a year. Uh, with both upside and downside risk. And I think it's capped at about three or 4%, but that's still a pretty big number. Mm -hmm. Similarly, the Medicaid ACO is 38,000 lives uh, with a budget of 250 million uh, upside and downside risk. Some things carved out, uh, but it's enough to get your attention. Uh, in addition, of course, we have the health plan, which has you know tens of thousands of fully insured lives for which we're on the hook completely. And you're one of, I think there's 106, 109 kind of provider-sponsored health plans around the country, somewhere in that range. I'm not sure of the total number. I know we belong to a networking group with 50 or 60. Yeah. And in that group, we're, I think we're in the top 15 in terms of size. And do you feel when you step back, because we've had a lot of health systems over the decades come in and out of health plans, do you feel like that's critical to your potential strategic advantage over the long term? We know it's critical. Right. We actually had a financial services firm come out and do scenario planning with us about, you know, what does it look like uh, in terms of various levels of risk? Uh, it was very interesting because we charged them with trying to chart out for us what, you know, what will it take for us to maintain a 3% margin as a system for five years? And the formula that they came back was get further into risk, go from about 200,000 lives at total risk now to about 300,000, reduce out, out migration uh, by about five percentage points, and move more toward well-managed benchmarks using the Milliman uh, benchmarks. Um, but don't overdo it. You know, we, we, so if we had 300,000 lives at risk, there'd be another 600,000 lives for whom we are the vendor of tertiary mm. care services on a fee-for-service basis. Mm. So very much a mixed model, kind of like Geisinger. Yeah. Uh, and so the pace at which you go into risk and how far you go before you stop is something that I think you need to examine through scenario planning. What's been fascinating to me over the years, sort of digging into each health system's sort of uh, strategic assets, if you will, is the folks that have been able to manage a health plan through the thick and thin and really truly manage it. And we have right. a, a number of uh, partners of ours in our network that I think of, of our 11 uh, health systems and payers, obviously there's one big uh, payer, but of, of the number of health systems, almost half of them, if not more than half of them, have health plans. And well, it feels like they that, got a bigger bigger profile that Yeah, way. I, I think that the, the key thing that we learned from that scenario exercise was that as we moved somewhat more, but not all the way into risk, like we didn't become Kaiser, um, that most of the additional margin, most of the arbitrage of lowering utilization and, you know, saving against uh, an assigned premium accrued to the health plan. Hmm. So if you're going to be in a shared savings arrangement, right. much preferable to be, you know, sharing it with yourself through right. your own health plan. I would much prefer to be to have our next generation Medicare ACO patients in our Medicare Advantage product in our health plan, but right. that's obviously an individual choice for the seniors involved. Got it. And so, kind of maybe flying back up a level at a national level, and you compare what's happening in Massachusetts compared to the nation, and you think about administration changes that have taken place, heads of HHS taking place. Where do you see us in the value? kind of journey? Well, I think at a macro level, 
Um, there clearly has been a lot of effort to try to hobble the Affordable Care Act on an executive level. Not Congress has not succeeded. I think there are roughly 3 million more folks that are uninsured across the country. Mm-hmm. But when you look state by state, each state seems to be drifting apart and following its own way. Here in Massachusetts, Medicaid expansion occurred, and we've got a waiver to actually push people into an ACO or population health model. We also have a state regulator that caps commercial price increases at 2% per year. And so uh, there are both carrots and sticks to get you to switch away from fee-for-service into more uh, globally budgeted products. Um, And I think that uh, in other states, the folks I talk to, it feels like the 1980s when they're still in old-fashioned fee-for-service. Nonetheless, for most people in most states, there is the option of getting into some kind of globally budgeted population health arrangement. And Medicare is trying to make it easier for people to get into an ACO uh, or to do bundled care or to do some kind of an arrangement where uh, you're trying to work as a team or as a system. Yeah, and it's it's been interesting to watch, um, just because back in Premier we were very close to obviously CMS and and see the shifts and changes of the administration. But I'm getting a pretty consistent answer from most leaders that we talk to, which we've talked about in the past too, which is we're on this gradual path. It's yeah. inevitable. It's just at what pace do we think we're ultimately going to get there state by state? Yeah. And obviously, the states have jurisdiction on a lot of this. Yeah, well, there was a lot of disagreement about the ACA. It's important to keep in mind that MACRA, uh, the uh, act which put in place value-based purchasing and you know codified uh, alternative payment arrangements, was passed with broad bipartisan support. So the idea of payment innovation driven by Medicare enjoys broad bipartisan support. And in my opinion... The folks at CMS have largely picked up where the old leadership left off. Right. And do you feel like CMMI is going to start pushing out more programs? They just, they just pushed out, I think, the um, uh, the emergency transport uh, demonstration project over the last couple of weeks. It feels like that's starting to pick yeah. up. Yeah, I mean, the advanced primary care product uh, project, you know, the bundled care initiative. I mean, a whole bunch of these things are going to be coming out. I think the difference will be that they'll be far more optional. Uh, and uh, less sort of constrained or mandatory than uh, than was the vision in the previous administration. Got it. Got it. Well, let's let's maybe switch gears a little bit um, and talk a lot of what we talk about at LRV Health all the time, which is around innovation. We we talked with you all a lot around innovation. Um, you know, a lot of history with Bay State. You guys have been you know on the forefront of a lot of things, not just on quality and safety and delivery of care, but on innovation. Uh, you know, recently, not not too recently, but a number of years ago, you stood up a whole innovation group and an innovation uh, center called TechSpring. We'd love to love to learn a little bit more about what that, what how that came about and and the thinking there. Sure. Uh, well, we we initially got a grant from the Mass Life Sciences uh, Center uh, to capitalize this. Uh, we took over the whole floor of a downtown bank building and built it out, um, and we and. Uh, we're able to get a half a dozen high-profile high sponsors like Cerner and Dell and IBM uh, to sort of uh, start up a group there. And on any given day, you can go down there and there'll be 20 or 30 projects going simultaneously. Entrepreneurs come there as a kind of shared workspace 
And what they do is they can get behind the firewall and access de-identified data, both claims and clinical data. Uh, they get advice on how to run projects and set up projects. And they also get contact with clinicians. They basically have these kind of hackathons or, you know, group uh cafes or whatever you want to call them, where uh, they'll come together around a specific problem area and the clinicians will be talking with the entrepreneurs about, wouldn't it be great if we could figure out how to do such and such? Um, it's, uh, it's led to uh, a number of innovations that are actually utilized here at Bay State today, uh, including uh, a user-friendly interface for our electronic health record, um, just-in-time information around the pricing of uh, medical devices. And I think four or five of them have gone commercial, one for fairly large money, $60, $70 million. Uh, yeah. So um, I think it's been quite successful in bringing together imaginative folks with an idea uh, and clinicians who share common problems and want to get solutions. And the benefit to you all on that is... Obviously, your care delivery folks get access to sort of the leading edge sort of things that are going on and disrupting. Mm -hmm. I assume that puts you, again, with your kind of leadership hat on here, making sure that at some point in time, you're constantly thinking about the disruptive trends that are going on out in the marketplace. Is it, does it yeah. help on that front? I, I think that, you know, it's not been a big financial success, at least as yet. Um, but I think it has been a place where people can direct it you know, the energy of imagination and innovation. And I think it's important that that has kind of an outlet in a group activity where people are uh, not feeling frustrated by the status quo, but actually can talk to people who can guide them along and help mature their ideas. Yeah, but so you know better than anybody from a cultural, like the single biggest issue we have in healthcare is the social system and getting people to change and getting people to rethink. So I would right. think this would have a big impact potentially on your culture. Um, over a period of time as people get involved. And yeah, feel I mean, our culture is a whole other podcast, I'm sorry to tell you. But, <laughs> but you know, when you're talking about, uh, you know, we have 12,000 employees and we, we either deliver or support care in 100 separate locations. We have some people who have been here, you know, who work with my father, you know, and have been employees here for 40 years and are really struggling with the pace of change and others who can't wait to sort of, you know, uh, go as fast as they can. And so we really need to sort of balance uh, a very disciplined approach to delivering the day-to-day -day product, which is, you know, high quality, low cost care uh, uh, that's coordinated and integrated, while at the same time having a, a culture around disciplined innovation, which to me means we have a lot of ideas, but as soon as we see one that works, we go all in on it and we try to really scale it up. And I think that's where a lot of health systems fall down. They, they often have a lot of innovation going on, but often they don't capitalize on the things that they even proven work. And that's, and I said this to you earlier, but I want to say it on record, which is what I've really appreciated about your leadership and the discussions that I've been with you at the intersection of the reality of care delivery today and what, crazy things are going on in innovation to a certain degree is the point you made about disciplined innovation. I yep. think that's a really important point for people to understand, which is we have the here and now, we have the disruption trends over here. How do you marry those in a very disciplined and pragmatic way so you do get to a, a more pragmatic sort of change protocol? I think that's right. Yeah. Um, you know, just as a, a 
couple of examples. Uh, you know, I'll give you two, one that's somewhat traditional and one that's very non-traditional. Uh, we have something called an acute care for elders unit where a given medical floor is staffed by geriatricians and social workers, and they work very hard uh, when seniors are admitted there to, keep, to minimize the psychologically active medications, get them up and walking more quickly. And we've been able to demonstrate lower lengths of stay, increased discharges to home, greater satisfaction, lower cost. And it, and it was like, wow, that's a great successful experiment. Well, let's generalize it and make this the standard for all elder care. Um, a bit more of an early experiment for us is um, a uh, mobile uh, emergency room. Uh, we have a an outfit called Dispatch Health that is miniaturized yeah, no emergency room equipment. Uh, they're based in Denver. Uh, we're their first um, East Coast above the Mason-Dixon line uh, implementation where a couple of Prius vans are cruising around Springfield. They've had 700 visits thus far. 80% of them are ER diversions. Wow. They can give IV fluids and you know uh, do EKGs, ultrasounds, uh, x-rays, give antibiotics, etc. Um, and it's been a fabulous success. So now we're trying to scale that up as well. Uh, but, you know, for every one of those, there are probably 10 failed experiments, right. failed innovations where we basically said, you know, well, that was kind of an interesting idea, but we didn't, but it didn't really work to deliver on quality and value. Yeah. And so we're not going to get behind it. And when you think about dispatch, just because I know them well, and, you know, there'd be skeptics out in the audience and saying, okay, what is the right way to approach something like that from a health system standpoint in a fee-for-service world compared yep. to a value world. How do you think about that? Well, the big the big negotiation with dispatch, because we were the first risk market that they uh, came into. They were in Denver and Phoenix and Dallas and a few other places, Richmond, Virginia. And they were up on billboards and on TV. And, and we asked them, please don't advertise here. We don't want anybody to hear about this except for our care managers right. and our doctors and, you know, it's, it's certain key individuals because the, the name of the game here is to lower the cost vis-a-vis -vis an emergency room visit and not to raise the cost on somebody who otherwise just might take chicken soup or go to an urgent care center. Right. Uh, so that was the key. We're really not trying to churn volume here. We're trying to mitigate cost. And, you know, to their credit, they bought into this. And uh, I think that they've said to they've said to us that the nature of the patients they've they're seeing in the Springfield area is fundamentally different. They're much sicker, as I say. Eighty percent of them would otherwise have gone to an emergency room, which is way higher than their usual rates. Yep. Um, but uh, and we're now looking at you know how much did this really save us in terms of total medical expense. So I, so then today that that particular example is being applied to your value contracts where you're having a fixed level of payment and you need to reduce site of care, you need to reduce Correct. expenses, and it's a perfect example of deployment. But we didn't restrict the calls to just the risk patients. Uh, we said you know anybody who's in our network can call these guys and get them to come. Um, but it just so happens that because 75% of our primary care patients are yep. in value contracts, that the greatest impact is going to be on cost reduction rather than, than revenue generation. And that's like uh, why I love that story and why I like those guys so much is it's really, it's not really complicated. Like it's some aspects of it's complicated, but it's really simplifying site allocation and thinking and, and getting to, you know, the ultimate goal that we all talk about, which is consumerism and really getting it to the place where it's convenient and easy yep. and accessible and efficient 
for your consumers ultimately, not just your patients. Yeah, the, the consumer feedback has been spectacular, right? It's one of the highest net promoter scores I've ever seen, which hmm. is 95. It's oh be- better than Apple wow. uh, and way better than you know, just about any healthcare right. organization I can think of. And, and just imagine, uh, this place goes to assisted living facilities and nursing homes. And I got a call from um, a friend who had called them for to take care of one of her elderly parents in assisted living. It was like, my God, we didn't have to go to the emergency room. She was a little dehydrated. They gave her IV fluids. They worked with her. They came, saw her the next day. They couldn't have been happier. Right. It brings back the time when your dad was a doc. I'm not sure he did all that stuff. But. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, that's interesting. So, so tying back, maybe just covering off on the tech sprint because we got we got into that whole innovation thread. Would you view that as a important thing for most health systems to be thinking about on an ongoing basis? Having some outlet like that, or I mean, having some, you know, because there's incubators, there's all sorts of things that are health systems. Health systems are building venture funds now. They're doing all yeah. sorts of fun stuff. Well. I am not sure that I would, you know, many are doing it yeah. uh, and many have really funded it generously. I mean, ours was done very much on the cheap, yeah. but I, I'm aware of centers that have been capitalized with, you know, tens or hundreds of millions of dollars with a view toward return on investment and some kind of intellectual property. Um, so, you know, ours is relatively on a small scale. I think if the goal was to develop um high quality, low cost care and be able to bear global risk. If that was really what you were trying to do, I'm not sure you necessarily would need to be the first mover into a space. You could probably just watch other people's innovation centers and, sure. you know, be a be a copier or a consumer of the yep. stuff that came out of them. Yep. Uh, so I'm not sure it's essential, but for us, I think it's been helpful because we're, you know, like it or not, we're kind of out in front on this. Part of it is... Um, the culture here that existed before I arrived, but part of it is we're, we're being pushed that way by our state government. Yeah, I think what's so cool about it too is you know you're out in Springfield, you have the largest market share. Springfield is what the second largest city, right? Maybe or third. Third, third I think. Sure. Yeah, but TechSpring gets also a lot of play in Boston, which I I find out, I get a lot. I, I like that that you guys well, are actually getting pulled into those markets that way. We uh, we love surprising them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think it's great. <laughs> I think it's terrific having dealt with a lot of systems in a lot of different geographies in this country. I think it's awesome. Maybe just to finish up, and this has been wonderful, um, and, and we've hit a lot of really good topics, um, but I always ask this question of, of most health leaders that we talk about, which is, and you've been around for a while in this area, when you step back and you think about the regulatory, the administration environment, you think about the reality of the situation here, you think about all the new emerging players. So we've had this discussion about what happens when CVS at Walgreens arrests are coming in and big tech is coming in now. What does this look like for the average health system in 10 years? Do things really change or are we still on this kind of pace of incremental change? Well, I think we're really scared by these new market entrants. Uh, I'm thinking of Optum, CVS, Aetna, you know, Walmart, Humana. Uh, what they seem to be wanting to do is coming in with tremendous resources, uh, very sophisticated consumer instincts and tech, uh, and looking at a narrow niche of the continuum we're trying to manage, taking out the well-insured patients, so being the front door of healthcare, uh, and leaving uh, the uh, traditional health systems with the uh, less remunerative uh, and more complex uh, patients. So we worry about this all the time, 
And as we're beginning to sort of think of the next iteration of our strategy, we need to figure out how do we at least um, narrow the gap between what we deliver today and this much more consumer-friendly, tech-enabled uh, interface, at least to fight them to a tie, if you will. Right. Um, the big question that they raise is whether there is value in the eyes of the consumer uh, for the integration that we provide, you know, so that the fact that we are with you every step of your life, you know, that uh, as a you know, young kid, you will come to our pediatric unit and, uh, you know, maybe you'll have your kids here. And uh, if you get sick as an adult or have an emergency, you'll come here. And then as you get older, you know, so that really the, the sum total of your story uh, can be cared for within the walls of this facility. Uh, I think these new entrants are questioning whether that is a value that people will pay for. Hmm. Uh, and I, I'm a firm believer in uh, what Jim Collins called productive paranoia, uh, that if you don't worry about this stuff as the CEO, you're not doing your job. And figuring out how could this really undermine what we're trying to build here, which is really kind of a community asset. Uh, we're trying to really take care of an the health of an entire community in a comprehensive, integrated way um, at high quality and low cost. And, you know, we're, we're pretty proud of what we've done. We're, we're the low cost leader in Massachusetts in total medical expense and have gotten a number of distinctions around quality, et cetera. Um, but that may mean nothing to some young millennial who basically just wants to you know, get online and deal with a sore throat or something. Right. And so we may lose a, a, a portion of our market. And do you feel like in the next five to 10 years, you'll see a lot of overlapping new emerging and established folks kind of partnering in different ways than we've seen in the past? Without a doubt. As a matter of fact, we have spoken with some of these disruptive competitors. They were a little surprised to see us. Uh, and we basically sat down and said, essentially, we understand what we, we think we understand your strategy, but sooner or later, some of your patients are going to need a hospital. And why wouldn't you pick a high quality, low cost one like us? So right. why don't we partner? Right. Um, it's, uh, they look at us kind of quizzically, uh, but, you know, uh, one of the big ones has just called us back. There you go. And so maybe something will come of it. We're big, you know, I think as you start taking on global risk for an entire population, nobody is smart enough and broad enough to cover everything. So right now we're partnering in um, urgent care, behavioral health, post-acute, um, a variety of IT services. We've outsourced a number of traditional things like food and environment in our hospitals. And we're continually looking to sort of manage partnerships and bring in expertise, often bring in capital and tech uh, to make it and make us quicker to market and less encumbered by having to build and run everything ourselves. Well, Mark, this is great. I mean, we, like you said earlier, we could go on for a while. There's a lot of topics here, but I really appreciate your time. And, and you know, I've been a huge fan, as you know, of Bay State for a long period of time. It's a tremendous um, organization and your leadership. And uh, thank you again for your time. Well, I really appreciate the conversation. It's been a lot of fun. And I hope you can come back in five years and we can tell a good story because, as I say, there are a lot more questions than answers right now. I'm sure you will. Well, good. Till then. Thanks. Bye-bye. All right. Well, that is a wrap. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Healthcare is Hard, a podcast for insiders. Hope you enjoyed this conversation. If you'd like to hear more, please subscribe to Healthcare is Hard. You can find it on iTunes. 
Once you subscribe, future episodes will be sent directly to you. We would also appreciate it if you told some friends and colleagues about the podcast. Podcast is growing, but we'd love to have more people listening. So thank you for spreading the word. Finally, if you'd like to talk directly to us, you can reach us both, Keith and myself, on Twitter. My handle is at MedTechTom. Keith's is more direct. It's just at Keith Figlioli. Figlioli is spelled F-I-G-L-I-O-L-I. And you can find us both there. We would love to hear from you. If you do share this podcast on Twitter, please tag us both. We'd like to be part of that conversation. Finally, you can email me. My email is tom at healthg.com. That's the word health, followed by the letters egy.com. Please go to healthg.com to check out all the conferences and podcasts we're putting out in the healthcare space. Finally, if you're uh, into medical technology, I want to let you know about our MedTech conference, which is happening on May 30th in Minneapolis. You can find out more information about that at medtechconference.com. That's it. Tune in next month. We'll have another great tale of healthcare innovation for you on the Healthcare is Hard podcast.